And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Here's what Matthew writes. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the de- deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. And Zeru- Do we have any Zerubbabels in here? No. And Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliak- Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Iliad, and Iliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the portation of Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, uh, we just need uh, your presence with us, uh, even in this moment, to uh, speak truth into our hearts concerning what we've just read. Uh, Father, I know it seems long, it seems boring, uh, Father, but you have a purpose. So God, I pray that you'd help us to see that purpose this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, if you know much about your ancestors, how many are into your ancestry? Oh, not as many as I thought. Great day. That maybe is faded by the wayside a little bit. How many of you know some skeletons in your family's closet? Oh, yeah, that's much better. Yeah, that's, 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 that's a little more realistic there. Yeah, the phrase refers to family members whose kind of shameful ways and deeds the family would just as soon not be put on public display. But you know what's great about the Bible? It doesn't keep the door shut on the skeletons in the family closets of its heroes. Matter of fact, it even reveals a lot of warts of the heroes, doesn't it? Even when it comes to tracing the ancestry of the Messiah, it shows us the unsavory characters in the family line. Now this list includes, and it even highlights, an adulterer who murdered his lover's husband to cover up the misdeed. There are idolaters, liars, a man who committed incest with his daughter-in-law, whom he thought was a prostitute, which says something about his lack of morals. Another woman in the list was a prostitute. 
And there is a notoriously wicked king who burned his sons uh, to death as offerings to a pagan idol. So it, it took a rather motley crew to produce the savior of the world. Now Matthew sets forth this kind of tainted lineup as he traces the ancestry of Jesus, the Messiah. Now in all honesty, it does seem like a dull way to begin a book, much less to begin the New Testament. I doubt if any editor today would accept such an opening for his book. Now most of us probably just skip these sections when we read through the Bible. Perhaps we, am I on? Okay. Perhaps we wonder why God would take up space in the Bible with this boring list of difficult to pronounce names of people who are halfway around the world. How in the world can this be relevant to us? Well, I believe this list of names is very relevant for us. For one thing, we know something about all these people. They lived for a short while and what? They died. So this list reminds us that we too will not live forever. Whether we live a relatively young life or live for a century, death and judgment before God, the one who knows all of our secrets, all of our deeds, it's inevitable. It's coming. So the most relevant issue uh, for each of us to be clear about is where am I going to spend eternity? And how can I be sure of it? You don't want to be wrong on such an important matter. You need to be sure that you have Jesus Christ as your Savior. Uh, Christ's genealogy shows that, that God sent us a Savior for sinners and that he fulfilled his promises in Jesus Christ. So the first major point, God sent a Savior for sinners. This list includes really a broad spectrum of people, some, some we know about, others we only know by their names in this list. Now there are kings and there are commoners. Oddly for the patriarchal Jews, there are some women on the list. Also oddly for the Jewish genealogy, three of the women were Gentiles. And the fourth was married to a Gentile. Three were notorious for immorality. Now the list is obviously not fabricated because no religious Jew would have put together a list like this if he's in trying to impress his readers with the, the pedigree of the Messiah. But everyone on the list shares something in common. Whether they were relatively good people or notoriously bad, they were all sinners who needed a savior. In Romans 1 through 3, Paul, he argues that everyone, whether pagan Gentiles or religious Jews, they are guilty before God as sinners. He sums it up there in verse 23 saying, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so everyone needs a savior. And Jesus is the savior of sinners who cry out for God's mercy. Now what I want to do quickly here is look at four women uh, that are in the list and see how each of them teaches us something important about God's salvation as provided in Jesus. Well, first on the list is Tamar. Here we see that salvation that Christ brings is for sinners. You know, Tamar's story occurs in one of the most sordid chapters in the Bible, Genesis 38. Judah, who was her father-in-law, uh, he, he had taken a Canaanite wife and, and through her had bore three sons. Well, Judah took Tamar, another Canaanite woman, as a wife for his first son. But this first son was evil in God's eyes and he killed him. So Judah then told the second son to go into Tamar to conceive an heir for his deceased brother. And when that son dodged his responsibility, the Lord killed him as well. 
Judah then promised Tamar that when the third son grew up, she could be married to him. But he either forgot or ignored his promise. Tamar then disguised herself as a prostitute, hiding her face under a veil. Not knowing that it was Tamar, Judah, uh, Judah had relations with her and she became pregnant with twins, Perez and Zerah. Perez is in the direct line that led to Jesus Christ. Now Tamar's history, it illustrates that Jesus is the savior of sinners. He deliberately associated with the tax collectors, didn't he? Matter of fact, Matthew, the writer of this gospel, was one before Jesus called him. Well, Jesus, uh, he was known as a friend of sinners. Now, when the religious Pharisees, when they expressed their disgust with this, here's what Jesus said to them in Matthew 9. It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. And he added, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, he didn't mean that some are righteous enough to get to heaven on their own merit. Rather, he wanted the Pharisees to see that they were sinners as well who needed a Savior just as much as the tax collectors and the prostitutes. Now, you may think, but, but I'm not as sinful as a prostitute or a swindler like a tax collector. I have my faults, but I'm not a terrible sinner. Be careful. That's, that was the mistake of the Pharisees. Their self-righteousness caused them to reject the Savior that God had sent. The angel told jo the Joseph that Jesus came to save his people from their sins. Now, to benefit from that reason that Jesus came, you have to recognize in the first place that you have sinned against the holy God and that all of your good deeds, they will not atone for your sins. You need a Savior, and Jesus is that Savior. But how do we obtain this salvation? Well, next we look at Rahab. The salvation that Christ brings uh, comes to sinners through faith. Now, Rahab has come down to us uh, in biblical history with the designation, the harlot. You know how you can't think of Thomas without thinking of doubting? Well, you can't say or think of Tamar without thinking the harlot, the prostitute. Uh, like Tamar, she was a Canaanite woman. She was excluded from God's covenant people, and she lived there in Jericho, actually in the wall of the city of Jericho. Now, she knew that that city was going to be destroyed. She believed in the God of the Hebrews, that he is the God in heaven above and on earth beneath. So she hid the Hebrew spies and pleaded with them to spare her life and the lives of her family when the, the, the Israelites came and attacked Jerusalem. Well, in chapter 11 of Hebrews, the great chapter on what we call the Hall of Faith, it says, By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. James talks about uh, uh, Tamar, or Rahab. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? So saving faith always results in a life of obedience. Rahab proved her faith uh, was genuine by her obedience in risking her life to protect those Hebrew spies. Now, the fact that Rahab is illustrated or listed here as a wife of Salmon, it shows that she had turned from her life of prostitution. By faith in God's promise, she experienced his salvation. By his grace, she even became an ancestor to the Savior. Well, third is Ruth. The salvation that Christ brings is for Gentiles condemned by law, but redeemed by grace. Like Tamar and Rahab, Ruth was a Gentile. 
Now she was a Moabite and so she was outside of the covenant people. But unlike Tamar and Rahab and even Bathsheba, uh, Ruth was a moral woman. She was married to a Jewish man who died. And when her mother-in-law, Naomi, decided to return to Israel, Ruth, out of love, chose to go with her. And she made that great confession, your people shall be my people and your God, my God. But as a Moabite woman, the law of Moses excluded Ruth from the people of God. And now as such, she's the type of those who are good, moral people. They're not flagrant sinners, but they are still under the curse of God's law. James 2.10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. Now that condemns everyone, even those who are as good as Ruth was. You, personally, work your way through the Ten Commandments on, a heart, on the heart level and, and you'll see that you stand guilty before God on every count. How then did Ruth find her way into the genealogy of Christ? Well, I can't relate the story in detail here, but the book of Ruth tells us how Ruth found grace and love in the eyes of a man who was her kinsman redeemer. You remember Boaz. Boaz paid the price of redemption and took Ruth the Moabitess as his wife. Now, it's a beautiful picture of how Christ, our redeemer, paid the price of our redemption with his own blood. As a result, we Gentiles, who formally excluded from God's people, and condemned by his law, were brought into his family as his chosen bride. So Tamar shows that salvation, that the salvation Christ brings is for sinners. Rahab teaches us that the salvation is received through faith. And Ruth illustrates that God's salvation is for Gentiles condemned by the law, but redeemed by God's grace. That brings us to Bathsheba. The salvation that Christ brings is sufficient to preserve his people in spite of their sins. Now Bathsheba was a Jew, and as such, she and David remind us of the fact that even believers can fall into gross sin. While we should never justify or excuse such sin, Bathsheba's place among the ancestors of Christ, it shows us God's grace in preserving his elect, even when they sin. We have the assurance that he who began a good work in us will complete it, will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now these four women illustrate from kind of different angles the great news that God saves sinners. If you have failed terribly, God sent the Savior for you. Maybe you don't just have skeletons in the closet, maybe you are the skeleton in the closet. Well, this genealogy invites you to come to Jesus and ask him to forgive you of your sins. If you have trusted in Christ as Savior, but you've fallen into some serious sin, this genealogy invites you to turn back to Christ, experience his forgiveness, and walk in fellowship with him again. So in Christ, God has sent that Savior for sinners. Well, the second major point, God fulfilled his promise in Jesus Christ. His name is stated in verse 1, Jesus Christ. Again in verse 16, Jesus, who is called the Messiah. And in verse 17, the Messiah. Now the, the name Jesus means Yahweh saves. Christ uh, is Greek for anointed one. In the Hebrew, it's Messiah. And it points to Jesus as God's anointed Savior and King. Now the fact that we have a genealogy of Jesus Christ... It establishes a very important truth for us. 
Our faith is rooted in history, not in myth, not in legend. Matthew was writing primarily to first century Jews who in those days kept very detailed genealogical records. If Matthew had fabricated this, the Jews would have challenged him on it. Now, there are some difficulty uh, with the genealogy. Matthew arranges it into three groups of 14 each, but the third group only has 13 names. Now, various solutions have been suggested, but as of yet, none of them are, are what you would say were completely satisfactory. Also, there's difficulties trying to harmonize the genealogies that we find in Matthew and the one that we find in Luke. Now, a major part of our problem in trying to resolve these difficulties is that we are 2,000 years removed from the gospel writers themselves. We lack their sources. But Luke begins his gospel by stating his careful historical research. Now, the fact that there are, are harmonistic problems between the gospels shows that the writers... They weren't in collusion. They weren't fabricating a story to look good. They were eyewitnesses of the ministry of Jesus or they interviewed eyewitnesses. So even if we can't resolve every minor problem, we can trust the integrity of the record. A major point of Matthew's genealogy is that we are dealing with a real person. He descended from the royal line of David all the way back to the patriarch Abraham. Now, Matthew makes two main points with his genealogy. A, God fulfilled his promise, yes, Jesus is the son of David. Now, Matthew lists this first above the fact that Jesus is the son of Abraham. Now, also, the, the, his three divisions, they can be summarized as the origin of David's kingdom, the rise and decline of David's kingdom, and the eclipse of David's kingdom. At the moment of despair, when it seemed that God's promise to David that his heir would occupy the throne forever was lost when it was not in sight, Jesus, the son of David, the promised Messiah, was born. Now, there's one other feature I want you to see. Matthew is tracing Jesus' legal right to the throne through Joseph. He makes an important shift in verse 16. Up to this point, he has said, so-and-so was the father of so-and-so. And it just repeats and repeats. But when he gets to Joseph, he changes that formula. He states that Joseph was the husband of Mary by whom Jesus was born. The whom in the Greek is female. It tells us that uh, Joseph was not the physical father of Jesus. Matthew goes on to explain the virgin birth in verses 18 through 25. If Jesus had been the physical descendant of Joseph, he would have been barred from the throne of David by a curse that was placed on Jeconiah, one of his ancestors. But since Jesus was not the physical descent of Jeconiah through Joseph, but rather his legal descendant, he qualifies as the legitimate son of David, heir to his throne. So Jesus is the Messiah. Now, the second main point is that God fulfilled his promise. Jesus is the son of Abraham. So Jesus is not only the son of David, but also the son of Abraham. This just takes us back to the covenant that God made with Abraham 2,000 years before Christ, where he promised Abraham that through his seed, all the families of the earth would be blessed. Now, there are kind of preview glimpses of this through the Gentile women that are in the line of Christ. As we've seen, three of the four women listed were Gentiles, and the fourth was married to Uriah the Hittite, a Gentile. Now, this shows us that Jesus, the son of Abraham, brings the blessing of Abraham beyond Israel 
to the nations. Now, this comes to its fullness when Jesus, at the end of Matthew, up there on that mountain, he commands his disciples to go and make disciples of who? All the nations. All the nations. God is moving all of history to fulfill his covenant promises to Abraham and to David. Jesus, the son of David, will return in power and glory to reign on David's throne. Jesus, the son of Abraham, is blessing the nations as the gospel goes forth to all of the nations. So this genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, it should give us great hope as we think about his birth. And that's what we're prone to do at this time of the year, isn't it? So his first coming represented the fulfillment of a 2,000-year-old promise to Abraham and a 1,000-year-old promise to David. His second coming will fulfill the repeated New Testament promises that he, that he will come again to judge the earth. Now, it seemed to Israel that God's promises to Abraham and to David might never be fulfilled, yet they were fulfilled in God's perfect timing. Although it may seem that Jesus' promise to come again may never be fulfilled, it will be fulfilled just as he said. The question for us today is, are you ready for that? Are you ready for that day when Jesus returns? The stories of Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba show us that God's mercy extends to all sinners who will repent and trust in Christ. And the genealogy uh, of Jesus as the son of David, the son of Abraham, shows that God keeps his covenant promises. Today is a day of salvation. Tomorrow may be, de- may be the day of judgment. My exhortation to you is you, you need to come this morning while you may. Well, let's pray. Father, again, we are, are blessed by your word uh, to know that you are a covenant-keeping God. That's probably the main point of this genealogy is that those promises to Abraham and to David have been fulfilled in your son, Jesus Christ. So, Lord, as the Old Testament folks looked forward to the Messiah, we look back at the Messiah, the Savior, the one that you gave to save us from our sins. So, Father, I pray that you'd work in our hearts, uh, Lord, that you would take out uh, just the hardness of our heart that we may may be able to see Jesus for just who he is. And as we lift him up, that he will draw all men to himself. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, um, just going to give you a chance to respond. Uh, maybe you have heard something that has clicked with you, and maybe you are running from God. Maybe you're one of the redeemed, but you're not walking after God as you should. Uh, our, our genealogy this morning tells us, yes, that's okay. God will forgive you. There is forgiveness in him. Simply turn back to him. And then at the same time, if you don't know Christ, this genealogy is saying, come on. Uh, today's the day. Judgment is coming. Everybody in, that, everybody in that genealogy lived and died. Most everybody, I'm going to say most because I don't know when Jesus is coming again. Wouldn't it be incredible if he came right now? While we're in, in, in worship, if you've got one problem in this world uh, and you're a believer, uh, your problems are gone. They're over. They're finished forever. Uh, but if you don't know Jesus, that's not your story. You need to come to him today. Uh, admit your need of a Savior. That's where, that's where people in the Western world struggle so much because we are brought up from an early age to be independent. 
right? We have those markers. Oh, he's walking. Oh, he's potty trained. Oh, he's riding his bike without, uh, what do you call them? Training wheels. Yeah, you, Jeremy, you remember that. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, we have these markers of independence. The truth is, Christianity is not a walk of independence. It's a, it's a walk of dependency. We're called to walk by faith, not by sight. So I encourage you this morning to do that. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, CrawfordvilleFBC.com.